Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is from Matthew, the 13th chapter. You heard it read a moment ago. It's the parable of the sower and the soil and the seed. Dear friends in our Lord Jesus, not all ground is good for growing, but some ground is great for it. Consider the Middle Eastern region known today as the Fertile Crescent. Coined the Fertile Crescent by a a University of Chicago archaeologist around 1900, this crescent-shaped region extends from the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea northward and above the, the northern border of the Syrian desert and then back down again southward, curving toward the Persian Gulf, forming a, a crescent, hence the name Fertile Crescent. And its soil lives up to its name because its soil is among the richest in the world, or at least it was. As satellite images now indicate to us that these rich and historically, very historically significant Mesopotamian marshlands are drying up disappearing. But some others would, would claim the world's richest soil. Some would claim that central Chernovsim, or the Black Earth region of Russia, is now the king of cultivation, boasting them, they, the residents there, boasting that it has the world's richest soil. And while this is perhaps news to some of you, it was to me when I found out about that, Many of you Midwestern transplants know well that even in our own United States, the rich soil of the Minnesota and Dakota Red River Valley has long been known to be some of the best ground for growing on the planet. We don't have to travel to to Mesopotamia or to Russia, even to Minnesota, though, to stand upon world-class soil. You're sitting on it. You're sitting on it right now, once known as the Valley of the Heart's delight for its soil. This fertile soil of our own Santa Clara Valley is among the best there is. And it has, through the years, provided the perfect conditions for agricultural yield. And the baskets of our backyard abundance, so often shared among church members, the apricots and the peaches and the pears and the plums and prunes and oranges and figs and lemons and you name it. It's the evidence of that which once defined this valley. It's the evidence of the good ground for growing that's still underneath our feet. Not all soil is good for growing, but some, some ground is great for it. Biblically, it would seem the case too, wouldn't it? It would seem that way biblically too as we consider our text for today and the the parable for the day. Seed cast by the divine sower onto men's hearts. And some, some seed falls by the way, says our Lord, and is devoured. It falls onto rocky and shallow soil and it's scorched. It falls among thorns, stifled. Yet some falls into good ground, fertile soil, and it takes deep root and it grows and it bears much fruit. Some ground is good for growing, but not all is suitable. Why is that? Because that's the question of the day, I think. Why is that? 
Why is the parable plainly depicts, why does the word which God the sower casts abroad only sometimes fall upon favorable ground? Now, there are many, unfortunately and mistakenly so, many who account for the difference here in an imagined predisposition in some men's hearts toward the the positive reception to God's word in in the same way that the fertile crescent soil is from the start and by its very makeup and natural condition more favorable to the seed growing in it than Sahara Desert sand might be. There are some, you see, who would claim that some hearts are naturally more receptive, naturally more favorable and open to God's word than others, or at least by some, to some degree, by some degree of free will in the human heart, one can cultivate a, or condition his heart or his life to be more receptive to that gospel word sown. You know, some would even attempt to quantify it. This imagined receptivity. In a 2004 article of the Harvest Times online, Korean columnist Kong Hee describes the Rainer Scale. Maybe you've heard of it, the Rainer Scale. A product of a research team led by Tom Rainer, which rates behavioral gospel receptivity in people. It features a scale of five different faith stages. So they say, U1 to U5, U standing for unchurched. Columnist reports that U5 means that one is highly resistant to the gospel. Quote, highly resistant to the gospel, demonstrating an antagonistic attitude toward it. U3, as we move along the spectrum, describes one who exhibits no apparent receptivity, neutral, perhaps open to discussion. U1, all the way to the other side of the spectrum, So the columnist reports, U1 is applied to those who who seem to be highly receptive to the gospel as like the Philippian jailer, end quote. Now to be fair, this research team doesn't claim to know men's hearts, only to, to gauge people's behavior. Friends, any attempt to account for growth of the gospel seed in some hearts and not in others by assuming a natural, more favorable gospel receptivity in some hearts more than in others simply doesn't fit the biblical picture of the natural human heart. Biblical truth, the biblical picture, it's this, that there are no fertile crescent hearts. By birth and nature, there are no spiritual red river valleys where naturally the ground is just plain good for growing the seed that's sown and falls there. All soil samples of men's hearts read the same. The biblical truth of it, hearts of stone. That's what Ezekiel says. By nature, hearts of stone, stony hearts that remained naturally so unless God changed. The biblical truth, Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful. Deceitful above all and desperately wicked. And Moses says that the natural inclinations of it are are evil even from youth. That's a stony, rocky picture of men's hearts. 
The biblical truth hearts naturally thorny, thick with greed, overgrown with the thistles of evil, evil thoughts. And adulteries and fornications and lewdness and pride, these are the things, says Christ. Remember he said it in the book of Mark? These very things he said in returning to us our, our soil sample of every man's heart. These are the very things that naturally spring up from the hearts of men. The heart, it's a naturally hostile condition. All hearts to the sown seed. So what makes some ground good for growing then? Only the work of the sower. God the Holy Spirit who blows where, and where He wills. Only the work of the sower readies sinful soil for the seed. God the grower takes His convicting word to the soil and He turns it over and around, ultimately so that we despair of ourselves and all that we might do for our salvation. To be right before God, He breaks up the stone, softens the ground of naturally hard hearts, tills the soil, conditions these hearts of ours. Sometimes He does not violently, doesn't He? With His law, with His biblical spade of conviction, He unearths all of our flaws so that we stand before the mirror of His law and know just what we are and how inadequate we are. And with the hammer of God, He crushes rocks of resistance until the stones of self-confidence are all crushed and crumbled. And He prepares this ground. And He creates, as we sing, He creates in me a clean heart. And He makes its soil suited for growing. And He alone makes hearts once hostile into hearts receptive to His own seed. You see, in this parable, Jesus describes for us not the initial state. That's where so many are misled here. Not the initial state does He describe of the soil to receive, of this, the sown seed. But no, in fact, he describes not the initial state, but he describes the final fate here of his word cast far and generously and wide upon the hearts of men. The vantage point is so important, not the initial state, but the final fate of that seed sown. And boy, is it true, isn't it? It's true. Despite the lavishly generous dispersion of this gospel, the saving gospel message, that's sown. And we picture in our minds as we imagine the, the, the sower in the parable, almost indiscriminately he's sowing it generously and broadly. But despite it, the fact does indeed remain, as Christ reports to us, that, that it does all too frequently fall by the way, as it were. And even before it makes its home in the soil and takes root, even... Indeed, before the sown seed settles in, the devilish birds come and they snatch it away. Isn't that the case so often? It's a common tragedy. Replayed daily in homes and at work and, and school. Wherein at home and work and school, wherein conversations there. Wherein these conversations, humanity's most excellent news 
is shared. Christ come here for us and for our salvation. This most excellent news is shared from one to another. But even before that sown seed settles, the devil immediately swoops in and he diverts attention. Promotes apathy. Encourages the mind to wander into anything else. The things of the day, perhaps. The things of yesterday. Encourages the mind to wander into and settle upon anything else but what's just been sown. Indeed, our own experience, our own experience in the pew or in the biblical study reminds us how swift he does fly down and descend on that which is cast from lectern and pulpit from the pages of Scripture. You consider those, those little birds. Think about the little birds. And you yourself know, watching them, how keenly watchful the little bird can be. Waiting for the seed to fall. And so you too be, be on guard. You be watchful as well. You in whom the word has indeed taken root. For blessed are those who hear the word of God and who guard it. That it might not be snatched away. And your crown taken with it. The final fate of the seed sown. If the birds don't get it, sometimes the scorching sun too will be its final fate. But recall not before it fell on the the shallow, the rocky ground and warmed by the sun. It did immediately spring up, as Christ says. And so it is with some. They receive the good news, as you heard in in the gospel reading. They receive it with joy. But then because the word created faith's not taken deep root in them, not regularly cultivated and nourished by gospel word and and sacrament regularly used, that under the intense heat of life's noonday sun, Matthew uses the word thlipsis, pressing, intense heat of persecution and tribulation. Specifically the persecution that we know because of our Christian convictions. Under the intense heat of that noonday sun, Christ says that so many times it's scorched and it is no more. But you, by grace, you're deeply rooted. You're deeply rooted. Your life is rooted in the knowledge and continually fed And nurtured by the knowledge that God spared not his own son for you. Not his own son for you, but gave him up for us all. And this he did so that fallen man's cursed ground, your cursed ground, and mine too, could once again be the garden ground of paradise. That's why he did it. The redemption price was high, you know that. It cost him his son's crucified life. The exchange was most unfair. Your hell becomes his so that his heaven would become yours. But even so, even so, it pleased the father to spare not his own son. And friend, if he spared not his own son for you, even his own son for you, you know that he'll certainly give you all the grace that you need. And the strength that you need to endure under tribulations, noonday sun. Do you know each time that that promise is reconfirmed to you? 
by the word preached or heard or read, by the sacrament of of Christ's forgiveness applied to you, that seed each time, that seed grows deeper and is more firmly rooted in you and you in Him. Birds and tribulations heat. They've been the final fate of myriads sown seeds. So too have life's thorns. For many a seed has fallen among them, and you know their final fate there. The thing is, Christ's word begins heaven's forgiven reality right now, but it doesn't promise glory until later. But tragically, how many million times over have the anxious cares of the here and now and the deceiving allure of glory, glory today, stifled and finally choked the patient growth of a seed that in due time would have blossomed into eternal bloom. The word implanted. Now that's how James describes that which has taken root in you. The word implanted, baptismally watered, and daily refreshed as daily you recall the everlasting longevity of God's baptismal commitment and promise to you. Enriched in Christ and by Christ. That's how Paul describes it. Word implanted, word watered, word enriched. We grow in Christ as naturally we would grow toward the sun's light. The new man of faith sprouting out of that divinely cultivated soil and yearning toward the light and the grace that emanates from God's Son. And friend, wherever and in whatever vocation you've been planted, don't be surprised at all to see faith, faith watered and nurtured by the sun's light. Don't be surprised to see faith bear fruit. Whether a father, employer, worker, child, whatever, wherever you've been planted, don't be surprised to see faith bear its fruit, for as a new creation we've been created to do just that very thing. Just that very thing, however many fold God would give us to bear. At one time, and many of you know this and can recall it, at one time one could stand and look over this valley and and see fruit tree after fruitful tree thriving in the valley's rich soil. Today, though the orchards are all but gone, one will still see, but here yet only with eyes of faith, one will still see seeds and souls thriving, even here today, thriving, rooted in Christ, enriched by His grace, growing up in His word and sacraments. God grant to each of us growth until the harvest of heaven takes us to our eternal home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.